0: But our, uh, our sermon text this morning is going to come to us from Colossians 2. Colossians 2, we're going to be looking at particularly uh, verses 8 through 15. It's a really wonderful section of the book of Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians itself um, speaks to the fact that Jesus Christ is the answer to all of the problems that face us as Christians people, as Christians, and as the church, and this particular passage talks about how Christ is the answer, and Christ is better than uh, the harmful or the deceptive philosophy that's offered to us by the world. So um, let's now turn our attention to Colossians 2, beginning at verse 8, and let's remember as we hear this, that this is the very and the true word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not With a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin this sermon, would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the fullness that your Son, Jesus Christ, brings. We pray this morning that we would have a a more complete and a more full awareness and knowledge of that fullness. And we pray that we would desire Christ and all of his glories and all of his benefits rather than the hollow and deceptive philosophy of this world. Please speak to us now and give us open hearts to receive and to be able to understand, so that we might be able to worship your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Whenever I come to Colossians 2, I always find that this section of Scripture resonates in my mind over and over and over again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And I think that one of the reasons that this resonates with me is that I was was a philosophy major in college. And so whenever I hear about it, it strikes me. As I was preparing for this sermon this morning, I began to think through some of the philosophies that I I, I learned about while I was in school. And I started to think, which one of these are hollow or deceptive philosophies? As I thought through it, I realized that there are actually quite a few philosophies that are hollow and deceptive. And that we could spend a lot of time going through all of the hollow and deceptive philosophies that we face as individuals and as Christians... But I thought that I would point out one in particular this morning for us. And it's the philosophy of utilitarianism. I don't know if you've ever had uh, the opportunity to encounter utilitarianism as a philosophy. Uh, I'll give you just a little bit of history about it. It's, uh, It's a philosophy that was begun about 200 years ago. It was started by a guy named Jeremy Bentham. He was an Englishman who himself was very opposed to the Christian faith. He didn't like the idea that so many people thought that morals had to be given by a great lawgiver from on high. He thought we can have morals and we can have morality without God. And so his goal was to try to develop and create a moral system that didn't require a God. And so he created utilitarianism. The point of it is this. He said that an act is moral if it maximizes pleasure or happiness for the greatest number of people. He said that it's, uh, it's also moral if it minimizes pain or suffering for the greatest number of people. And as we think about that, we might realize that there are some aspects of that, that that might be appropriate. As Christians, we're called to care for those who are weak or hurting or suffering or hungry. We're called to alleviate suffering. Also, it's not inappropriate for us to be happy, for us to be joyful. And so there are aspects of this that we might think, you know, there's appropriate things being said here. But, you know, if you dig down into what utilitarianism is saying, and if you dig down into the way that it's been used, particularly in our culture, we start to realize that it's harmful and deceptive. And there's just a couple of reasons that I want to give for that. The first is this, is that utilitarianism only looks at results. So people could have done an action with totally and completely evil or nefarious sort of goals in mind, but if more people end up being happy by the action, that action would be a moral action. Or things that we know to be sinned, know to be wrong, might be considered appropriate in this moral system of reasoning. For example, I uh, really like Reese's peanut butter cups, not as much as my dad, who's here. He loves them. And if my dad were to steal a Reese's peanut butter cup from Walmart it probably wouldn't be much missed by anybody in that store. It probably wouldn't affect the bottom line uh, of Walmart all very much, but it would probably bring my dad a great deal of pleasure. But that does not mean that stealing that would be a moral action. And here's here's sort of what what gets down to it. People have taken this philosophy, and and we probably encounter it all the time today, don't we? We encounter those who say, I want to get my own I want to live the good life, and I want to maximize my own pleasure however I can. And we see this way of thinking start to work its way into the church, too, don't we? I don't know if you've encountered religious teachers or religious congregations who have said something to the effect of, you know, God wants you to be happy, and that's really chiefly what God wants for you. When, in fact, God wants us to be holy, holy, firstly. Others have taken this way of thinking and said that God wants to give material blessings and that the point of the Gospel is for you to be richly blessed monetarily, for you to live in a big home, drive a nice car, live the easy life. And as we come to to realize the way that this has played itself out, we realize that this is a philosophy that's empty. And really, the truth is that's because it's, it's Christless. Any philosophy, any system of thought, any way of conceiving the world that exists apart from Christ in his glory is something that's empty. But what Colossians tells us is that Christ himself brings fullness. brings wholeness. Any way of thinking that stands opposed to Christ, that doesn't glorify him, or set Him at the center of our thinking, that's harmful and deceptive. But, if we trust in Christ, Jesus brings us fullness. And that's what Colossians says. You've been given fullness in Christ, who's the head over every power and authority. You've been given fullness in Him. And so this morning, I want to talk about three ways... Three ways that Colossians 2 says that Christ brings us fullness. And I hope that what we'll realize is that in trusting Christ and in conforming our thought patterns to Christ, that will bring us richness and fullness. And to do anything else, anything else is hollow and is deceptive. And so there are three ways that Colossians talks about how Christ brings fullness. The first is that He brings us new life. And the second is that He takes away our sin. And the third is that He triumphs over His enemies and our own. And so first, He brings us new life. And Colossians says this in verse 13. It says this, it says, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. When you were dead, God made you alive. Now, for an example of this, I'd actually like to turn to the philosopher that I just mentioned, Jeremy Bentham. As I said, Bentham was a man that didn't believe in the Christian faith, and he didn't believe that there was anything for individuals after they died. And so he acted on this belief in quite a curious way. Bentham was a very wealthy man, and he left a significant amount of money to the University College of London under one very strange requirement. That requirement was that they would uh, mummify his body, they would dress him up, and that they would sit him in the boardroom of the college so that he could attend all the board meetings of the college. And from time to time, so that's what they did, dutifully. They, they, They... mummified his remains. His head went very wrong and some students stole it to play some soccer with it. So they had to make a wax head to set on his body. And there he sits in the University College of London behind some glass. And from time to time, they wheel him out into board meetings. And they take role at these board meetings and they they say, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. And the reason that this is the case is that if Bentham ever did vote, you could be assured that it was the end of days and that, in fact, we were experiencing the resurrection of the body because dead men can't vote at board meetings. And in essence, what Colossians is telling us is this. Those who persist in this hollow and deceptive philosophy are exactly like Jeremy Bentham. They are dead. And if we persist in anything that's opposed to Christ in the way that we think or in the way that we live, we are dead individuals, unable to vote at a board meeting, unable to do anything because apart from Christ, we're dead. It's profoundly serious and much worse than we might think. We think, well, I'm walking around and I'm alive. And in fact, people who aren't sitting here in church are walking around and are alive as well. But what the scriptures say is that if they're apart from Christ, then they're spiritually dead. And that their ultimate end is death. And without Christ, we have no ability to save ourselves to do anything of merit or anything worthwhile. And that's why we need Christ to save us from first to last. And that's why Colossians says that while we were dead, He is the one that made us alive. Each one of us, at one time, when we were gratifying the desires of our sinful nature, when our thought patterns were in line with the way that the world conceives of life, those of us who were living like that were dead. And what we needed wasn't just Morality wasn't just being nice, wasn't just better thinking. We needed a resurrection. And the reason, the first reason that Christ is so much infinitely better and infinitely greater than any harmful or deceptive philosophy is that he brings life where everything else brings death. When you were dead, he made you. Alive. Do we recognize this? And Do we realize this? When we come together with God's people in worship, do we recognize that we are sitting with those who are alive? Alive not by their own goodness or their own profound thinking or right acting, but alive because Christ acted. He acted. And because of that, we're alive. That's the first way that Christ brings fullness. The second way that Christ brings fullness is this. Jesus brings fullness by taking away all of our sin. And this is what's said uh, in Colossians 2 again. He said this. He forgave all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. And he took it away, nailing it to the cross. What's being spoken of here, the written code that stands against us, this is a a Greek way of speaking of a debt. It's talking about a debt that stood against us. And I think that uh, the place that we are, we can probably fairly easily conceive of debt being right outside of Chicago. I was reading the newspaper this morning, and I read that Chicago is is really struggling with how to pay its pension responsibilities. And they're talking about how they're in such great debt that uh, the mayor is unsure how they're going to be able to get out of it. It's something that's being talked about often, very, very often, because the city is so profoundly in debt, no one's clear about how to fix the problem. Those of us who live here understand debt in that way. But the fact is is that each one of us has a debt that's far more profound than the pension obligations that Chicago needs to pay. The debt that each one of us has is all of our sin. And each one of us has committed a great deal of sin. We're great sinners. And so you can conceive of receiving the notice of your own debt. You could conceive of getting the mail and noticing one envelope that's especially large and opening it up to read of the debt that you need to pay. The debt of your own sin. And how horrifying would it be to receive a notification of all your own sin, hearing of all the debt that you owe And if we were to read every sin that we've committed, both what we've done and what we've left undone in our life, we'd realize that there is a huge written code that stands against us, and it's our own sin. And I'm sure that we would be plunged deeper and deeper and deeper into despair if we read more and more and more of this notice, more and more of the written code that stands against us. And so again... There's only one way that there can be a a a way that this could be solved. There's only one way that an end could be brought to this written code that stands against us. And again, it can only come by Christ Jesus. Because what does Colossians say? Well, it says that He canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away. And what did he do with it once he took it away? He nailed it to the cross. And if you could conceive of receiving all of your sin, all those great many sins that we've committed throughout our lives, if we could have conceived of receiving that and reading all of those, I'd like you to think of another thing. And that's of Christ nailing that to the cross. When Christ was nailed to the cross, He hung with His own sentence above His head. We remember that, don't we? It read He was the King of the Jews. It was in the space where, his sentence was normal, was where the sentence for the criminal was normally supposed to be written. But what Colossians tells us is that that's not the only thing that was nailed there. But in fact, the whole of our sin, the whole of the written code that stood against us, the whole of our debt was placed there as well to the cross. It was nailed there so that the sentence that Christ suffered was our own sentence. And as he hung there and bled and died on the tree, and as he rose again from the dead, he covered over all of our sin, he canceled it, he paid for it, and so when we now receive the notification that's due to us, and if we were to open it up and read it, we would no longer read sinner, but we'd read justified, holy, righteous, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, no philosophy can do that. No way of thinking that stands opposed to Christ can take away our sin or cancel the debt that stands opposed to us, but Christ did on the cross. So all of our great sins have been covered because we have a much greater Savior. Praise the Lord. Christ brings fullness by bringing us life. He brings us fullness also by canceling our debt, paying our sins, giving us His righteousness. But there's a third way that Colossians talks about Christ bringing fullness. This is what it says. In verse 15 he says, "...and having disarmed the powers and authorities..." he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now the language, again, that's used here is actually quite specific language that's very unique in the, the course of the New Testament. And these two phrases, uh, uh, the, the phrase public spectacle and triumphing over, when used together, would have brought to mind For the people receiving this, a very specific set of circumstances. At this time in Rome, a public spectacle was this. After there was a general who had gone off to war and had conquered a foreign nation, that general would be brought to Rome and they would have a public spectacle for him. And the way that this would work is that the whole city would turn out and there would be a parade and the general would be paraded through the streets with people lining all the streets screaming praises to him and worshipping him as a god. And following after this general would be his great and mighty conquering army who walked behind the general through these streets as people again screamed praises. And bringing up the, the rear... Of this procession, of this public spectacle, would be all of the uh, prisoners of war that the general and the army had taken in the course of their battle. And this would be a sorry lot, beaten and, and bruised and bound, and insults would be screamed at them. And here's the irony of this passage. This is the irony. Christ seemed to be the prisoner of war. He was paraded through the streets. He was taken to die. And to everyone who viewed, they would have thought, he's the prisoner of war. The one who's been conquered. The one who's been captured. The one who's been beaten and bruised. And scarred. But here's what's amazing. It's that right at the moment that Christ appeared to be. Prisoner of War, it became revealed that he was the conquering general he 's the one who triumphed over these powers who were crying out against him by dying upon the cross, and right at that moment where he seemed the most weak and the most ineffective that 's in fact when it became proved that he was the conquering general to be worshipped as God because he is God in him, the fullness of deity dwells, and so is Christ walked that procession to the cross, and was insulted, that's when he proved that he was the conqueror and the ruler, that he won. That's how he disarmed his enemies and put an end to them. And that's how we can be comforted by the fact that our own enemies have been put to rest as well. Christ conquered them, made a public spectacle of them when he triumphed over them by the cross. And that's why we have such great hope for the future and that's why we're given fullness because Christ has won the victory right when it was assumed that he had not. He won. And now we sing that he sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit. And we're called to kneel before him and worship him because he is the conquering king who has won, who reigns, and who rules now and shall rule forevermore. It's this Jesus, the one who brings life when none else can. It's this Jesus who cancels our debt by his own blood and gives us his righteousness. It's this Jesus who conquered his enemies in the most unlikely way possible. It's this Jesus who brings fullness, brings fulfillment. This is so much more profound and more beautiful and more deep than any harmful and deceptive philosophy. So much more. And so as we conclude this morning, I'd like to again say with Colossians, don't don't be captive by harmful and deceptive philosophy. Because anything that parades itself apart from Christ anything that parades itself, while it may appear to be the conquering general, is in fact the prisoner of war. And any way of thinking or living that stands opposed to Christ or apart from Christ, that is hollow, it's deceptive, it's empty, and it will bring us nothing. But Jesus Christ, our great Savior, brings total fulfillment It's a beautiful truth. It's why we must worship Him and it's why we must trust our lives to Him. Amen.